Hello, and welcome back to the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast. I'm Lisa Tang. And I'm Sabrina Douglas. We hope you enjoyed our last podcast where we took a deep dive into sugar, featuring some of the undergraduate students in the Applied Human Nutrition program. Those were some pretty sweet episodes, huh, Sabrina? Yeah, they really sweetened up my day. So today we're going to bring you the last two winning episodes from the Nutrition Communication Course Challenge. The first episode provides some information and really great practical tips on how you can reduce the sodium intake for the whole family. And then right after this episode, we'll hear some of the most recent and exciting research related to alcohol consumption among young adults. So without further ado, let's dive into the first episode. Welcome everyone. Hope you are all having a wonderful day so far. Uh, whether you're watching this recording or listening to the audio version, we are very glad to have you joining us here today on the very first episode of the Better Health Podcast. Here we focus on spreading knowledge on living a healthy and active lifestyle. I am your host, Jeffrey, and today we are very excited to be joined by the Sweet Spot RD herself to discuss sodium intake. Cheryl, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks, Jeffrey. Very excited to do this. Before we get into things, Cheryl, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. I'm here in Calgary, and I've been working with people who have heart concerns for 16 years now. Uh, For about 10 of those years was with our local cardiac rehab program, and I still work part-time with them, and I founded Sweet Spot Nutrition about seven years ago to focus more in a private practice setting uh, for people who want a little bit of extra support. That's great, thank you. I personally really like that Sweet Spot approach you have, which is your, you have that like triple Venn diagram where you're trying to find that sweet spot, like combining health, what tastes good and what like what's right that fits the person. I think that's really cool to conceptualize and have in practice. Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge there are lots of other considerations when people are choosing food, and that applies to sodium as well. eh? Health is one uh, one thing you keep in mind, but sometimes you have a higher sodium food because you're in a in a hurry and you have to drop your kids off at gymnastics, or you really are in the mood for pizza or something, and that's okay. You know, you decide how how you find that right balance, your sweet spot. So to just really start us off at the basics, what really is sodium and why do we need to consume it? Yeah, that's a good question because I think a lot of people get confused between salt and sodium. Sodium is really just a mineral that's found in our bodies. Actually, we need it uh, for our muscles and our nerves to work properly. It helps with fluid balance, but most people get way more than they need and that can lead to some health problems. Right. So we all need it to survive. And like you said, if we have a little too much, then those there's going to be some problems. So can you elaborate on like what kind of problems do we see when that happens? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think everybody thinks first of high blood pressure, of course, as being associated with high consumption of sodium, at least chronically. Not one meal doesn't necessarily put you there, but if you're doing it year after year. Uh, High blood pressure is our biggest concern, and that's a huge risk factor for things like heart disease and stroke, which are major health concerns for Canadians. Uh, It can also contribute to 
kidney disease, as well as actually stomach cancer, believe it or not, and osteoporosis, that sodium in your blood kind of leaches calcium out of your bones. Uh, so there are a few other reasons we want to stay away from high uh, sodium intake. And I do have that sometimes people say, well, my blood pressure is fine. It's like, well, let's keep it that way and help you also avoid some of these other concerns. Right. So I guess the essence is we need to keep that on a balance. We, we always need it to live, but we don't want too much of that. So continuing with that, where are Canadians getting their main sources of sodium every day? <clears throat> so first of all, the main source of sodium is salt, but not necessarily salt that a consumer is adding in the kitchen or at the table. Uh, it's actually, and I should just clarify because sometimes people get confused, salt is sodium chloride. And in the Canadian diet, like I say, salt is the number one source, but it's usually salt that's added either at restaurants by the chef or in man manufactured foods by the manufacturer. So it's salt that's been added before you even see the food and you may not realize that it's in there. Uh, so about 77% of our foods, they say, about 77% of our sodium comes from restaurant and processed foods. And only about 11% comes from a salt shaker used in your home. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's kind of hard to grasp, especially at home when you're cooking, you're like, oh, I think today, every day I only need like this, this much salt, like a really small spoon. But then when, when you look at the greater picture, like every product you have, like those all contain a bit of sodium and that's what's stacking up over the days when you eat. Right, right. I think when people get to a point in their life where maybe high blood pressure or another uh, sodium related concern is important, they start reading labels, they're quite surprised at <laughs> some of the foods that uh, contain sodium they wouldn't even expect. Like breakfast cereal, for example, can be a pretty significant source of sodium in some people's diets. Mm -hmm. So to sodium is spread across our diet, just even if we don't look at like the box of salt we have at home, like everything else have a bit of that. With all that in mind, what factors do you think influences a person's sodium intake? Well, so if we just kind of step back from choices people make and we look from a public health perspective, uh, a couple of things. We know there's a big correlation between healthy eating and socioeconomic status. So people of higher income, higher education tend to have healthier diets. And so, of course, those who aren't able to get, you know, up on that socioeconomic scale tend to have more sodium in their diets. Uh, so that's one factor. And then as well, on a systemic level, we have a lot of sodium in our food supply. Canada actually has more sodium added to our foods than many other countries. Uh, we, we have kind of a salty taste buds here in Canada. And so that's it's tough for the consumer when you go to the store and it feels sometimes like everything in the store is full of salt. Uh, but in fact, that's, of course, not the case. And there are some strategies you can take in your own home to help limit your exposure to sodium. Yeah, I think that's that's a very hard concept where people to think about because it's always oh like I'm just somehow you're, you're having too much sodium but yeah but out there there's a lot of factors that we can't control like how manufacturers do their things and how like even like socioeconomic status is even a bigger thing that we can't you can't really control to change so I think yeah that's really interesting to see. Yeah, certainly I think as healthcare professionals and as citizens in general, we should be lobbying for improvements in the health in the food system and things like package labeling. Uh, but in the meantime, we can also take care in our own kitchens to to do what we can. Uh, so I always tell people, you know, first and foremost, if you just do more of your cooking at home, 
than uh, going to restaurants, ordering takeout, fast food. Right there, that's going to make a huge difference for your sodium intake. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, really trying to get more of those foods in your diet that are just naturally low in sodium and don't have a lot of salt added to them. So that's of course, things like fruit and vegetables, everybody kind of knows and thinks of that, whether they're fresh or with, you know, the cost of fruit and vegetables these days and some of the supply chain issues. I always like to remind people that the frozen ones are really good, too. And read the labels. Most of them are just frozen as is. Uh, sometimes they will have extra sauce or flavoring that might add uh, some sodium. But you can certainly get lots and lots of fruits and vegetables just unadulterated and frozen as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, other things like grains. Bread, in fact, is one of our bread and other baked goods, at least that whole category is one of the biggest contributors to sodium in our diet. Uh, it doesn't seem like much when you look, a slice of bread might be about 175 milligrams of sodium or so. Uh, but if many Canadians might have three, four, five slices of bread a day, it can really add up, right, to, to a pretty big chunk of how much we'd like it aimed for for sodium. So taking a look at things like bread and, and at some meals, can you have something like pasta or oats or rice that you can cook without any salt. You can't really make bread without salt. <laughs> it doesn't work and certainly doesn't taste very good. But just by shifting to some of those other grains, just like with the fruits and vegetables that maybe wouldn't have salt on at all, as well with meat and fish and chicken, you can buy uh, those things pretty fresh and they have very little sodium. Or you can get flavored, marinated or processed things like bacon, sausage, ham that are going to be loaded with sodium. So just looking for those fresh minimally processed ingredients is the second big thing. Uh, and just those two, you don't even have to read labels. <laughs> those two things will make a big difference. Uh, but then the third thing I would say for sure is to start looking at the labels uh, for people. And that's just to keep it really simple. Anything that's 5% or less is like green light, you know, no worries there, at least for sodium. Of course, there are other considerations. And if it's a little bit higher than that, you can eat that food too. You just want to make sure, you know, is this something I really enjoy or is it nutritious in other ways? And, and not, of course, having too many of those, especially the ones that are really high, like the canned soups and right. some of the prepared mixed meals where they start to look like 20, 30, 40% on the labels. And that takes a big chunk out of your daily budget. For as a regular, a normal person navigating this and in grocery shopping, what do you think they should prioritize when they're looking to cut down on sodium or to just not have that much sodium as they would? You know, I, I always do believe as, you know, you know, my my whole uh, approach is I call it the sweet spot approach where you're looking for that balance between food you enjoy and food that supports your health to the extent that that's important to you. And so the places where I think people can uh, make a big bang for the buck are uh, like no salt added canned goods, say with tomato products. That's where a lot of salt right. is hiding in canned tomatoes. And uh, so if you just look for the no salt added, they still taste really good. You don't miss out a lot there. I mean, we just last night, I was very tired. We had, I asked the kids, could you just make some spaghetti guys and you, you guys make it? And they, of course, opened a jar of spaghetti sauce, which is loaded with sodium. And so I just grabbed out of the cupboard for them a uh, no salt added canned diced tomatoes, popped that open and mixed them together. So you still get some flavor from that spaghetti sauce in the jar, but you get so much more just fresh tomatoes with no sad salt added with that uh, no salt added canned tomatoes. Uh, the other one is no salt added canned beans are pretty widely available now. So always, always recommend that. You don't, I don't think you lose anything there in terms of sodium taste, salty taste. 
you know, you're not usually really benefiting from the taste of salted canned beans anyways. It's more of a preservative. Uh, so mm. things like that where you're not losing a lot in terms of flavor, nutrition, enjoyment, uh, but you can cut out some sodium in those, those home foods. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I never thought about kind of mixing it. So then you have a high salt product and like a very low salt product <clears throat> kind of come together to make like a medium salt level product and then it's so yeah. enjoyable, but it, it would go a long way in, in the long term of cur- curving that sodium intake. I think, I think yeah, that's a very interesting way of seeing things. Yeah. Well, some of those convenience foods are, you know, people are busy. Sometimes people have a job and kids to take care of. And so I, I don't like to say, well, never use convenience foods. But gosh, we use them all the time in our kitchen. We just look for the ones that are lower in sodium. Or if we've got something like that canned spaghetti sauce or a spaghetti sauce in a jar, just mixing them uh, with other things, like you say, kind of diluting them. Uh, something like cereal, for example, with this is more sugar, but sometimes I'll have people who really like some of the higher sugar cereals, uh, Raisin Bran or Harvest Crunch, and also, by the way, those have some sodium in them. So sometimes we'll just have mix it with a shredded wheat or something that's no salt, no sugar added. So you're half and half and you've, you've got uh, something that still tastes good to you, but it's about half the salt or sugar in it. Right. So, yeah, so that kind of maximizes what you enjoy while also keeps things healthy at the same time. Right. It does keep everything simple because it's not about, well, like processed products are bad, so never have any, which, I mean, processed products are there to make our lives a little easier. Yeah, I mean, in reality, most people don't want to spend all day in the kitchen. (laughs) So we kind of try to strike the right balance for each person. Some are more inclined to cook, some less. Uh, But you can still eat healthy either way. Mm -hmm. To just bring things together, Sodium is this a mineral that we all need to survive. It's not the evil thing that's going to get all of us as long as we keep it within moderate levels without having too much of it. I think the most important thing that I learned is just sodium is way beyond our control into in terms of like what, how much we actually have because the processing, the what you can afford and the time you have to cook, that all comes into what food you use, what food you buy. And at the end of the day, it's about kind of maximizing what works for you and what tastes good for you and what you enjoy and try to work that into like a balance of liking it and healthy. Absolutely. And I I do think you do have some control for sure we're working on uh the public health system you know trying to do what we can uh to get less sodium in the food supply and make it easier for people uh but you you know and that's what i do on my blog at sweet spot nutrition it's full of practical tips and there's a whole section there on blood pressure and sodium uh, looking at some different foods that you can kind of swap out uh like we've talked about today or uh, approaches to cooking that are still quite convenient but get you that sodium reduction that people are looking for and it doesn't have to be to zero, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We don't need a zero sodium diet, as I say. And you can even, you know, you can have a moderate amount. Sometimes I'll have people count up how much sodium they are consuming. And they're quite pleasantly surprised to see it's it's not that bad, actually. You're fine, even though you might have a little bit of this or that, uh, you know, that's got some salt in it. Totally. It's only really when we get too much all the time. Then this is a problem, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for taking your time to share your wisdom with us. Today, I'm sure our viewers have learned a lot. I certainly have learned a lot about sodium. 
So you did talk about your blog. Uh, would you mind telling us where else we can find you or where we can find the blog and all that? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's sweetspotnutrition.ca with the Canadian ending, not the American. And uh, it's easy to find me there as well. You can reach out and email me or uh, my phone number is on there if anybody wants any uh, support or has a quick question. I'm always happy to answer a quick question. And I'm on all the socials as well, at least the major ones for us middle-aged people, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. And always happy to have people uh, reach out through those vehicles as well. Okay, so... For our viewers at home, remember to check out Cheryl's website and follow her on the social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. That's all for today. Thank you so much for taking your time to speak to us. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the first episode of the Better Health Podcast. See you next time. Hello, everyone. We are very excited about this podcast episode and we hope you enjoy this on a walk, on your commute to school or work, or even just in the comfort of your home. We will be discussing alcohol consumption today, more specifically excessive alcohol consumption and the consequences that come with this behavior when it's done in excess. We are bringing in an expert on this field and we are very excited to hear what he has to say. Today we will be interviewing Dr. Kokar. Dr. Kokar completed his undergraduate degree at Queen's University and his PhD in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Toronto. Currently, he is an assistant professor in the Biomedical Sciences Department at the University of Guelph. Some of his research at his lab includes understanding the mechanisms underlying schizophrenia and substance use disorders and assessing the long-term effects of adolescent cannabis use and how this affects mental illness. Today, our focus will be on alcohol consumption. Let's welcome Dr. Kokar. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, what projects, research you are currently working on? Yeah, so the, as you said, the research in the lab uh, sort of has two main areas of focus. On one side is trying to figure out what um, substance use and schizophrenia what causes substance use and schizophrenia, what the consequences of it are, and how to treat it better. And then on the other side, it's the effects of drug use and substance use and alcohol use during adolescence and the long-term consequences of that. And so um, some of the work that would be related to what your um, topic is on today is looking at the effects of alcohol drinking during adolescence, either alone or in combination with other drug use like um, nicotine use and cannabis use, how that results in long-term physical changes and functional changes to the brain, but then also the behavioral consequences. So, uh, for example, some of our research looks at what does drinking or vaping at the same time um, do to reward-related behaviors in adulthood. Others are looking at what does it do to cognition, our ability to understand something or our ability to remember something. Um, or um, in some cases, we're even looking at schizophrenia or depression-like behaviors. What is the impact of substance use during adolescence on all of those domains okay excellent thank you so um the next question is about kind of what would be the main impacts of excessive alcohol intake in young adults so i guess if we could focus in what would be some of like the top impacts negative impacts of excessive alcohol in this kind of university college student age group 
And so that's where it's important to sort of think about it in two different ways. On one side, you have what would be the immediate or the short-term consequences, and then you have the long-term consequences. And the immediate consequences are, you know, things that we can all think of, um, driving under the influence or driving while impaired or um, risky behaviors, uh, violence potentially, or... um, um things are passing out or you know um one of the other not consequence but uh um uh, sometimes um an impact of this could be on your scholastic or academic performance etc and so those are more of the short-term um effects and then there are the long-term effects and so a lot of research has looked at the long-term effects and we published a few different um papers on this uh, some looking at it from a brain imaging point of view where um long-term changes in brain structure and function are observed um as well as looking at it from a behavioral point of view where now uh, excessive alcohol drinking in adolescence is associated with a greater risk for either psychopathology, so depression or uh, anxiety-like behaviors, um, or uh, changes in memory. And so in memory impairments, learning impairments. And then lastly, the and most importantly, is the more alcohol is used during adolescence, the earlier it's used during adolescence, the greater the chances of somebody developing an alcohol use disorder later on in life in adulthood. And so that's another important part of it where, you know, uh, we might think of alcohol as something benign, something that's a part of um, the university atmosphere, The um, all of those things. It we don't really recognize that there are uh, toxic endpoints to it that are both uh, short-term, you know, that could be everything from blacking out to impaired liver function and then long-term effects on the brain that are, you know, in some cases irreversible. So even if you stop drinking, some of those effects remain into adulthood. And so those are some of the domains without getting into, you know, specific things about, you know, white matter changes or volume changes in the brain or, uh, you know, what kind of memory tasks or cognitive changes. But these are the sort of bigger domains that effects have clearly been seen in both in human studies as well as in animal studies that have been trying to model some of this. And as you can understand, in human studies, there's all sorts of other considerations, socioeconomic status, genetic factors, et cetera, that we can't control for. Uh, but in animal studies, where an animal is the only thing that's changing is their exposure to alcohol, we've seen clear changes that are long-term in terms of behavior as well as brain function. Okay. Excellent. Wow, that's a lot of, lot of great information. So for these human studies, what kind of age, early adolescence, what age would that be that you were looking at? Yeah, so it all, you know, there there are studies, there's epidemiological studies, and then there's brain imaging studies. And there, So it all depends on what type of study is being looked at. For example, the biggest study that's being done right now as we speak in the U.S. is called the ABCD, the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Study, where they have recruited, I think, 10,000 12-year-olds um, that they're going to monitor over the next 10 years and ask them questions about their substance and alcohol use and do brain scans and do a variety of testing over the next 10 years to really begin to see in a in a 
prospective manner, right? Like uh, most studies are retrospective studies where they'll assess somebody and ask them, how much did you drink? And there's all sorts of biases that go into uh, how much people report drinking. Some of them might not even remember and people don't usually have an accurate reflection or recollection of how much they drank, especially um, if we, uh, at the time that they were used. And so this study, the ABCD study, is going to give us a good sort of prospective view on things. But the studies really differ. You know, some studies um, have looked at uh, users versus never users at the time they might have been 12 or 13 or 14, all the way up to 18. And some others are looking at their outcomes when they're 21 years old or 22 years old and something along there. And then being asked, you know, how much did you drink when you were? younger and then you find great uh, comparison groups so for example there's a, uh, a nice comparison group that's often used in these studies they're referred to as the teetotalers um, and they there are these group of youth that uh, due to their convictions don't drink at any point in their lives and so we can compare the the normal development, um, what that would have looked like without alcohol, to development, what it looks like with alcohol. And so um, there, there's no real, you know, single answer to when people are studied. It all depends from study to study, changes from uh, what the question being asked by each of those studies is. But I think the, as, to, as to your question, the ABCD study is probably going to provide us the most conclusive answers that we're looking for because we have both large number of people and adolescents in that study, but then we can also follow them over the period of 10 years, see what's changing in their brain, see what's changing in their behavior, and we have very in-depth uh, family histories and other things like that that will be i think the our most powerful look into the 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 causal effects of this because most of the other epidemiological studies are exactly that they're association studies right if somebody drank what are their outcomes but we can't causally link them but at least in these individuals we can see that this is where they were before and now after they drank this is what the change was yeah, that's fascinating. Definitely something we'll um, we'll look into and look forward to hearing those results in, in 10 years. Sometimes alcohol is referred to as a gateway drug. What do you think of this statement? Do you agree with that? And what kind of effects on the brain does alcohol have that could lead someone to this conclusion? So uh, there's a, the gateway hypothesis is very popular, right? And it's, um, and it's, it's an important one because um, people talk about how drugs like alcohol, cannabis, or nicotine may give rise to the future use of harder drugs. What we can't tell from these hypotheses is would that person have gone on to use these drugs anyways? Like, for example, you know, there's a great deal of genetic overlap between somebody who is going to use alcohol versus somebody who's going to use nicotine versus who's going to use cannabis. And so the gateway hypothesis, while, uh, you know, Denise Candell, who suggested it, is... Um, is uh, somebody who uh, you know is influential in the field they don't really you know it, the, the hypothesis itself doesn't necessarily capture um, the potential confounding things um, that might be contributing to this and so it's it's really important for us to um, to think about what the potential confounds are having said that however 
this is something we can model in animal studies. And so if you gave animals adolescent exposure to alcohol, they actually do show increased intake of nicotine, increased intake of other drugs, and especially increased intake of alcohol itself in adulthood. And so, so there are some priming or some changes that happen into the brain that make the brain more vulnerable to substance use later on in life. And so that's, I think, uh, one thing that I can um, say or suggest uh, is that there might be uh, some effects at the level of the brain. But as far as the whole gateway hypothesis goes, the jury's still out on it because there could have been other factors that were contributing to this person going on to use other hard drugs that just end up showing up or being related to their alcohol use in adolescence. It's just that the same person may have a more risk-taking profile, right? Like that they like taking risks. And so they would be more likely to try alcohol and then they might be more likely to try another harder drug. They might be more impulsive. They might be more... And so those are the sort of things that are important to consider are what are those underlying factors that may be contributing to both the... The, the alcohol drinking at this point and then the later use of other drugs. And so those are, the I guess, the important uh, considerations whenever we're talking about these things. Right. So it's maybe safe to say that it's not necessarily a gateway drug, but um, the consumption of alcohol doesn't, it doesn't, it ha- doesn't help your chances of kind of staying away from those other substances that are harmful to, to adolescents. Yes. And, you know, it's uh, the important thing is alcohol in some ways, you know, even though uh, illegal drugs and opioids and cannabis and get a bad rap, um, alcohol remains probably one of the most toxic materials that people regularly put into their body. Um, in terms of years of life lost, in terms of productive life loss, in terms of morbidity and mortality worldwide. You know, there was a really nice study that came out in Lancet now three or four, four years ago that showed that the, the safest amount of alcohol consumed is zero. So uh, the, the only safe amount of alcohol consumed is zero. So there are harms associated with alcohol. It's just as a society, we don't recognize those harms and we we're sort of we've agreed to uh be okay with them that doesn't mean that the harms don't exist yeah that's that's a great way to put it thank you for that so moving on a little we watched your ted talk um which was excellent um very well done could you explain a little bit about how not only parents but schools um such as universities colleges could breed a more positive environment on alcohol and drug consumption yeah, and I, th- I think that's an important question. I think uh, what we need to do is equip students with the tools to make the right decisions for themselves. You know, emerging adults, young adults, they're looking for that sort of agency and they're looking to make their decisions for themselves while dealing with a developing brain, right? Like the, the brain is still developing, the frontal cortex, the, the sort of impulse control parts of the brain haven't fully developed yet. And so that's what you're up against that, you know, while the, the limbic uh, regions of the brain are in overdrive and they're really pushing you to try these things and there's a greater influence on sociability and greater influence on social influence and all of that during this this age um, it's important for us to equip 
students with the necessary information. So um, I teach a fourth year toxicology class, Tox 4000, and we actually um, made a website and made a series of infographics and YouTube videos and TikToks, etc., talking about the the effects of alcohol to try to have evidence-based data and put it in the hands of students who are making um, these decisions. And so um, so I think that that's, that's what we need to do and have more education approaches uh, during orientation week, you know, um, Wherever, you know, wherever students might find themselves, um, you know, one of the most effective approaches that I've actually seen is um, um, is information about alcohol in bathroom stalls, for example. Um, so that, you know, where you're forced to sit and read something for a minute or two, uh, that might be a, a good place to think about it. But And to produce it in a manner that's, you know, both visually appealing, but also uh, has actual content instead of you know just using the just say no approach or you know uh putting fines or coming down heavy-handedly in terms of instead of policing i think if we should focus on educating that would produce better um outcomes yeah that's a great point and i think if we're looking at targeting universities and college students they are interested in in that information right and the research that's been done they kind of have that mind to look at that so that might be a better way to target university and college students the tiktoks the videos what you just mentioned you've done with your class is that all available kind of to everyone online i think the link is alcohol-toxicity.uoguelph.ca um, and so you can check it out okay excellent yeah we'll definitely link that to the podcast before we let you go is there one thing you would leave our listeners our target audiences college and university students so that's kind of been our focus of the discussion but is there one piece of advice um that they could get out of this podcast what would it be um i would say that uh, one piece of advice would be do your homework all of the decisions that we make should be informed decisions be there healthcare, be they be related to whatever else uh you know the courses we choose the uh the dorm we decide to stay in the housemates that we live in we do we make informed decisions let your consumption of drugs and alcohol also be an informed decision find out you know nida the national institute on drug abuse has some great resources on about the effects of drugs and alcohol on the brain read up on it so at least you're making an informed decision instead of just making a decision that's purely driven by uh peer or societal pressures and then um the other thing that uh, i would add to this is that it's important for not us, not only for us to be making these decisions in an informed manner, but also uh, think about the use patterns as well. Like if you're going to be using, it doesn't mean that you have to then, you know, be binge drinking and uh, intoxicating to a, a large amount. Instead, you know, the same thing that I say to people about cannabis, start low and go slow is, is the mantra that I would share with uh, anybody about any and every all drug use. That's very well said. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on. Yeah, this thank podcast. you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. We will definitely link um, those websites. Um, and it was great to meet you.